Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. There's a story behind every successful family business and enterprise. And like any good story, there are conflicts, setbacks and victories, as well as heroes and villains. And there are deep running and transcending themes related to survival. The longer the family persists, the further a family removes itself from the founder's story. Many families seek to capture the story for generations to come before the stories are lost. Some families will write a book, but some families might find a documentary is the best way to capture the family story. We recently worked on a documentary for a 120-year-old family business, and we want to offer our advice to you if you think a documentary might be the best way to tell your family story. We will cover why a documentary might be better than a book, and we'll offer tips on how to create a compelling documentary that best tells your family story. But before we do that, Dave and I are together, so that means we are going to tell you where we made progress. And it's been a couple months, so hopefully you and I have both made a lot of progress. <laughs> My progress is so, is the word pedestrian good? So I basically hired a neighbor's daughter to to do the cleanup for our yard. So... I have had her mow the lawn for a couple of years. Last week, I thought, man, I've got all these leaves to to clean up. It's the Midwest, you know, and all the hardwood leaves are following now and or have fallen. And so I, I convinced her to to help do yard cleanup. So I just think that's a huge marker of progress for me. I'm having the neighbor girl do it. Tell me how that relationship started. Did she come to your door and say, hey, I'm doing yard work. You want to hire me? Or did you see her out working on somebody else's yard and ask her? So her mom and dad, just great parents, they, they, I think they purchased a new lawnmower and she's been doing their lawn. And then she had a brother and she and the brother had a lawn mowing service. So I would see them just again, they're next door, right next door to us. I would see them put this lawnmower on the back of their, they have this big SUV, but they had a little carrier that they put on there. So every Saturday she would load it on there and she and her brother would take off and her brother's two years older, but she's the most responsible one. And so I love, I love that, that she wants to do it. So I just went over there and asked her and she said, yeah. So, and we have this great relationship. Leaves are such a downer this time of year. Because it feels like they never end if you have multiple trees around your yard. We also did leaves this weekend. And I guess that that is progress for me, too. I guess we're truly Midwesterners and we're talking about collecting leaves. But what we're doing differently this year is Jerry is actually, Jerry is my husband. Jerry's actually mowing all of the leaves and putting them in our garden to create like mulch, which I think is great. So usually... We blow them to the front and in our town, 
you can just put them out on the street and then the leaf collectors come by and they pick them up. But instead, this year, we are mulching them and putting them in my garden because I'm much more into gardening and I care about my soil more than I have in the past. So I'm <laughs> I'm hoping that that will help, especially some problem areas that I had. So good progress in the backyard. It's so nice to have it cleaned up, even if we get some more leaves in the weeks to come. So that's a lot of leaves. That's a lot of mulch. Don't you feel like you have like too much mulch? I mean, when I think about all the leaves in our yard, your garden's not that big, is it? It goes the entire length of the yard on both sides. It's actually a pretty decent size. So, oh, so maybe, hopefully, maybe hopefully it's not too much. So Dave, I'm really excited about our topic today because we recently completed a documentary for a family business. And so it's fresh on our mind. And today, before we delve into the seven tips for producing a documentary, I'd like it if you and I talk a little bit about why is a documentary better than a book? And typically, books are the first thing that come to mind when a family wants to tell its story. It's just the default, right? It's been around longer than film. But a book has its limitations. So what are some of those limitations, Dave? So I think the first thing is often when we think about a book, we think of it, we think of a traditional book, the 250 page, 50,000 word book. And honestly, it's really hard to sustain an interest for 250 pages or 50,000 words. And so, yes, you can create a really boring book of facts and information. I mean, you can throw pretty much everything that the family has either the either photo that you have or information that you have. But it's very hard to create a sustained interest in a book with a family's history, uh, with a family history only. I think, I do think books have their limitation. And related to that is tension, right? And whether, whether you can actually find a writer, whether it's some within the family or externally, that can sustain interest for 50,000 words. And one re- related aspect to that is that families are quite protective of some of the detail of the struggles that made them great. And yet it's those details and moments where things were at stake that actually make the, would would make the book really interesting. And so sometimes families are protective of those. So I just think that sometimes it would be very difficult to sustain interest for 50,000 words. I'd also add to that, when you think of a book, typically it's written from one voice, right? You have a narrative voice. So whoever it is that's writing your family story will be that voice. And what ends up happening is that you don't get the comprehensive view of the family business. You don't get multiple voices, which is why a documentary is so unique because you actually interview multiple people. So you have multiple voices. It's not limited to one one voice. Obviously, there are different ways to do books where you can create multiple voices, say essays by individual people throughout the book. And it's a little bit different, but a documentary does allow you to have more voices as part of the family story. I also think that you get different takes on the same historical moment. And obviously, like you said, a third-person narrative can do that. But what ends up happening with third-person narrative is they take all of the material and they create one moment. As compared to a documentary, 
you do multiple interviews and you stitch them together side by side and it creates a little bit of tension or it just makes it a little bit more interesting because some people are going to have different recollections of a historical event. That is so true. It adds a layer of complexity and color. Some will remember, let's say, the color of the trucks, thinking about the the project that we're working on right now. Others won't. And to have that person who remembers that color just of the truck, that adds just some wonderful imagery to to the documentary. Melissa, why don't I just interview you for these these seven tips today? Because I think you have just come off the most intense phase in some time in terms of creativity and working on this project. And I think it's it's fresh for you and, and what went well. And so why don't we just start with the first tip? What is the first tip for helping families create a documentary? I think that they should start with the research. And what might happen with families who seek out a production agency, they may say, yeah, we can create documentaries. And they'll go in the day of the documentary and ask these questions for the first time. And they'll have a general idea of who your business is. And they'll do a little bit of research probably to understand the the history of your business. But what ends up happening, if they don't do a deep dive into the research, they don't have the through line, which is going to hold the story together. We're talking about sustaining interest in a book. The same is true, I believe, in a documentary. You have to be able to sustain interest. And one way that you do that is you identify the primary conflicts and the primary themes that are going to be stitched together throughout the entire entire documentary. And so the way that we approached this project was we started with the research. We called it preliminary research. And so we interviewed over 30 people related to the family. So family members, employees, vendors, customers, friends even. And we interviewed over 30 people. And we started to see what these threads were that held the story together from the very beginning of the family story, almost 120 years ago to even today. So Dave, you were instrumental in writing the script. What were some of those themes? Well, certainly one of the main themes was generosity in the family. And, you know, people have these plaques on their corporate wall about we believe in people and people are the first. And but one of the things you saw in this, in the work that we did in the research early on was that this family actually lived out that value, the value of generosity to all people. In fact, one of the great moments was in 1955 when their business had a had a fire and it took out all their trucks that did distribution for their business. Their competitors came in and saved the business by doing the distribution for the business during that window of time between after the fire to the time they got back up and running. Think about that, that you're so generous and you're so relational that your competitors come to help you during your time of greatest need. I I don't know. It was one of the most stunning moments for me getting to know this family. But it wasn't just then. You see this all the way through. So you talk about this through line. Why don't you explain the through line and and what does that mean? So when I think of a through line, I think of it as a book's thesis. What are you saying 
about your topic. And so our topic is this family business. What are we saying about this family specifically? It's not just that they sustained a family business for almost 120 years, but it's how did they sustain that business? And so that's the through line. And so we had some major themes that informed what the through line was. And it had to do with how they treated people, which you mentioned, their hard work ethic, and their innovation. And so those were the primary things that became this through line. And we realized that every story that we told had to hinge on one of those key three themes. What ended up happening, and this happens when you write a book, also when you have a governing idea, a thesis, something very specific, it allowed us to decide what stories belonged and what stories didn't belong. Because you can imagine after doing 30 plus interviews, we had more stories than we knew what to do with, right? You just can't add every single story to a documentary. But all of those stories began to inform what the underlying themes were that created this through line. We had to do that research with vendors and customers, even if they weren't interviewed for the final documentary to understand how they've survived and what they're like today. So I would also say that when you have that through line, you also then can build on that on the day of the shoot, right? Because some things might come out in the day of the shoot that haven't come up in the primary phase, but you will know in that moment what to ask a follow-up question about because you know what those themes are and you're digging for those ideas to fit into the story that you want to tell. I think what I hear you saying is that if you're the one producing the video for the family, let's say you're a family member, you should not wait until the day of the shoot to know which stories are probably the major stories for the family. You should have done that work in the research phase. Now, it doesn't mean there might be some surprises that come up that are wonderful in the shoot where the person you're interviewing, let's say the original founder who's still alive, maybe he or she is 90 years old and they all of a sudden a new story pops up. But there should be very few surprises, I think what you're saying on the day of the shoot because you've done all your research. I would also add to that, Dave, which you're absolutely right about, is that because on shoot days you have limited time, right? You're paying somebody to to video these documentary interviews and you need to make the most of your time. You don't have time to go down these interesting paths unless they relate to the key themes, right? And so I would argue that you want to make the most of your time interviewing your interviewees and get those stories that you know are going to be most important to tell before. You need to know that before. You don't want to waste time the day of the shoot. And that's not to say that things don't come out the day of the shoot because they will. But you do the hard work before and it's going to make a much easier day the day of the shoot. I'll also say that what's really interesting about the research phase is that you begin to piece things together that the family has never pieced together before. You're taking your time with the interviews and you're asking these nuanced questions that maybe you wouldn't ask the day of an actual video shoot. So for instance, we knew about the fire. Multiple people in the family talked about the fire. And then I did an interview 
with one of the brothers and he said, yeah, there was in the office, there was this big vault and we never knew what that vault was for, what was kept in there. But then another brother we interviewed said, the customer records were in that vault. So when everything else burned around around that vault, the vault remained. I mean, the entire roof flew out. I mean, I think that they said that a truck blew out of the the roof because the because of the heat. Everything was destroyed, but the records of the customers were in that vault, which allowed competitors to come in and serve the customers while they got back on their feet. So that's a really interesting detail that we pieced together because we did this preliminary research. Okay, so the first tip is to begin with research and slow down long enough to do the research because that will pay dividends later on as you put the documentary together. Okay, that's our first tip. What's the second takeaway or tip? So this is correlated to the first, and that is to start with the script. I would argue that many documentaries are inductive. You want to tell the story of a family, yes, but you don't have any idea what that story is until post-production. So you're just going in and collecting stories. And then after production, you decide, oh, I think that this is the story that we we want to tell. And it could go any number of ways, right? But you're piecing it together after the fact. And that is one way to do it. That's what a lot of documentarians do. So if you want to do it that way, that's fine. What worked for us, though, is creating a script where we build in the narrative arc, because really a documentary is about creating that tension. And the script allowed us to figure out how to create tension, how to sustain interest, and how to focus on those things that really mattered to telling the family story. So I think the first point really, besides having that narrative arc, is that you don't have to worry then the day of the shoot that you're not going to get the right stories because you know you have the script. And in order to fill out the script with the interviewee's words, you need such and such a story, right? And if you get some other stories, great, but you know what you need to make that script complete. So a script really becomes this this rudder to keep you moving in the right direction. What would you add, Dave? Well, I think the script gives you a map, a very specific map for the day of the shoot. It gives you the plan. Because if you've written the script, you know exactly the holes, not the holes, but the places that you need video in. And if you've done the first tip, which is the research, you know exactly the questions to ask to make sure that it's a productive day. So a script becomes really this blueprint that, yes, it will adjust over time and you will you will probably shorten the script. Most often when you do a documentary and you write a script, it's probably too long still. and Or maybe you have to expand the number of minutes. Let's say you say we're going to do a 12-minute documentary. It may end up being 15 because there's just so much good stuff. But I do think a script gives you that map for the day. I also think it's a risk if you are doing a video shoot without a lot of research, without a script, and what you end up with then is a string of disconnected stories. They're just kind of great stories. Oh, we got to get Uncle John talking about the party that they had at the golf course in in 1977 or something like that, right? So you don't realize that that story is an important story, but it's not a, a major story. So 
I think with a script, you very quickly learn what is a major story and what is a minor story. And sometimes a lot of those minor stories ends up end up on the cutting room floor because they really don't move forward the through line that you talk about. So Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot here. When we were writing this script, and we actually spent a lot of time on the outline or the pre-writing phase to get the get the narrative arc absolutely right. But what would you say the best piece of advice is for writing a script? Well, this is going to be a surprise to you, but we co-wrote the script, right? So I think the biggest piece of advice is have, yes, you're going to need one person to drive the initial draft, but unless you have a co-writer like you, and then also Allison came in and gave great feedback. I just don't think a single person can write the script and have a really powerful script. So my biggest piece of advice would be have a team write the script. Yes, though. I mean, it's not like it's by consensus and everybody throws in their what they think and and it's some compilation or, you know, you just add it all together and get a script. No. But I, I think the biggest piece of advice is you do need a team to write the script and people who have been engaged in the project know the stories and can push back on certain things and can add certain things that you just can't do if a single person is doing it. But I would say the outline that you, we, one of the things that we did that made this so easy to write, you did it again in movements, right? Just like we, we structure books and we structure books for memoirs and we structure books for nonfiction writers, is that you created movements based on this through line that we had discussed earlier in all our meetings. So having that structure before you write the script, so it's just not one person's idea of what it should be. I just think the team piece to this was, and the structure was just critical. I think we approached it much like writing a memoir, right? In many ways, a documentary of the family is like a family memoir. And so you talked about major stories and we call those our tentpole scenes where something was at stake. And in the case of this family, it was the fire, for instance, in 1955. How will they survive? after everything was destroyed. Another one was early on during the depression. How do you survive during the depression? The major scenes, the temple scenes had more at stake. So a key leader died, the, the leader who was responsible for one of their, their primary relationships in the business. When that person died, what do you do? What will your, will your future look like when you lose a key player? So I think that the advice is to find those major temple scenes where something is at stake, where the survival of the family business or the family enterprise was at stake. One last thing that I'll add to that, and this is something that we talk about in great fiction writing, and that is in medias rests in the middle of things. We started not at the beginning, which would have been the safe route to go, but we started at the fire after they had been in business almost 50 years. years. Yeah, 50 years. Yeah, 50 years. So that that's a way to engage the audience from the get-go, right? You want to start where the action is and what better place to start than with a fire, right? It's, it's, it's compelling. It's frightening. There's danger. There's so many components that just make it a really great place to start. Editing is important. Post-production is obviously where it's at, but 
an over-reliance on editing in the post-production phase, I think can lead to a disjointed and less authentic final product because what you're doing then is just dealing with the stories you have as opposed to the stories that you strategically wanted for the documentary. All right, so let's go to point number three or tip number three. We have the first one, which is begin with research. The second one is to start with a script. What is the third takeaway when creating a family documentary? Well, this has to do with building rapport with your interviewees. So a great take on film day with your interviewees is built upon trust. People who feel comfortable around you, who know what type of questions you're going to ask. They aren't frightened because it's not the first time that you've met, right? So if you do this research phase, as we have discussed already, then you will have already interviewed the primary interviewees. You will have already built trust with them because you've spent at least an hour, if not more, with these individuals hearing their stories. And what that also does is that gives you insight to who they are, gives you talking points. You know what they do on the weekends, you know their family. You can ask questions when they arrive to the shoot. When they're sitting in the makeup chair, you can chat with them, ask them what's going on that weekend, ask them about something that they mentioned in the previous interview, laugh with them, loosen them up. The key is to make your interviewees as comfortable as possible. And that starts with trust, which hopefully you will have built during that research phase. And then also just by making them feel comfortable the day of the shoot. It's really important as you go into the documentary filming, you'll see when people are tight and it's so incredibly difficult to get them to loosen up once they're tight. So if you can get them loose at the beginning, then chances are you're going to have better takes throughout the entire interview process. So one of the things we did, we talked about our research, but we did interview these 30 people, which again included obviously the family members who were the leaders of the business, but also customers, stakeholders, employees. And so how we did that is some of the interviews were done by phone only and then transcribed, and then others were done through Zoom. So that's where that initial trust was kind of built in those original calls. So it's so important that people show up on game day ready to talk and that they feel comfortable to really loosen up and tell stories. Great stories are done when people aren't thinking about it. I know the day of the shoot, we had a lot of fun laughing with the interviewees. They were all related. They were cousins or brothers, and one was a son and a, and a father. But they all came in wearing the exact same thing, basically, the exact same dress shirt, the exact same pants, and exact same vest. So we were joking around about how they all wear the same things. They must be family or just joking around about. Had their the different family stories. uniform. <laughs> yeah, the family uniform. So it was lighthearted. And as soon as you can put people at ease, it's just going to improve the actual shoot, which you want. You want great takes from the get-go. Okay, let's jump to the next tip. Let's talk about number four. What is the 
fourth takeaway or tip when creating a family documentary? The first take is often the best take. That's so hard to to stomach sometimes because you think you're going to get better and better and better. But when interviewees don't think they're being filmed, and this played out last week when we did the video shoot, they're more natural. They just start telling the story like they would if they were talking to a grandchild or a friend. And so often we'd get people in the seat and they would still think that the videographer and the sound guy were getting things ready and they were rolling and they were so natural. They were so at ease because we hadn't said we're filming. And those were the best stories. And what we found was as soon as you ask them to repeat the story because you want them to start a certain way, you want them to start in a complete sentence so you can stitch in that story more easily into the script, they become hyper aware of the camera and it feels more performative and people suddenly lose all that ease that they had when they thought that they weren't being recorded. So Obviously, you need to get the story that fits the script. And sometimes that first take won't fit exactly. and You have to do a second take. But there's a point of diminishing return when you have to start and stop multiple times because you think you're going to get the perfect take. I really don't think there is a perfect take when you have people coming in and just kind of recording off the cuff if they don't have a script, for instance, like a teleprompter type script to help guide them through their story. And we didn't want that because we wanted more authentic takes. So I think that some ums in a in a take are all right. You don't have to have perfection. I even think that ums are authentic. It doesn't feel as stilted. So I I would say stay as close to that original take as possible. If it was your best take, stop asking for more takes as soon as the person feels stilted and maybe go back to that after you move on to a different story. We did that a couple of times also where we just moved on. And then at the end, I'm like, hey, can we go try telling that story again? And because they're further removed from all the times that they tried to restate it and they couldn't get it quite right, they were able to do it better. So that's another idea too, is just push that that question aside for a while and go back to it. Just move on and try to get the interviewee comfortable again. So what is your view on video prompters? There's no room for the emotion. There's no room for the laugh, right? I can think back to our recent interview day and the best moments were when somebody was telling a story and mid-sentence they had to chuckle because something made them laugh, right? Because that memory made them laugh. And that's what you want. You want the emotion in that story. As soon as you enter a teleprompter to the mix, you don't get that authenticity with emotion. You don't get the laughs. You can't say cue laugh, right? It wouldn't be authentic or look to the side because you're a little bit sad. It's hard to remember that that moment that was really difficult. So I feel like teleprompters strip the authenticity from the recording. And the fifth takeaway is what? You can never have enough B-roll. So what is B-roll first? You can think of A-roll as being your primary role, the interviews, and then B-roll is that supplementary video that you're going to use to create movement and enhance the story. So it's imagery, right? It's image-driven. So you're not just stuck on the interviewee's for the entire documentary. That would be very boring. So 
if you have a script, if you've done the research and you have a script, it's a lot easier to know on the day of the shoot what B-roll you need to get because you know the story you want to tell. And so somebody's telling a story about, for instance, when the when the company was founded and we knew that there were these ledgers from the founder with all of the records of the transactions with customers. And so we had one of the interviewees scroll through these ledgers, or we had another interviewee look at a map, old, old map, I think turn of the century around 19 teens and identify where the actual family business was and where the family house was. And you can zoom in on that map, zoom in or zoom out and have the person pointing to the map. So there you have a little bit more action than just the person sitting in the chair. So it's a way to make the story more interesting and engaging. And you have to take advantage of those B-roll moments when they present themselves. So when you work with a production company, they may say, okay, we're going to do interviews on this day and this day. And then this third day, we're going to do B-roll. But what we ended up doing was doing B-roll on the first day because one of the interviewees wasn't going to be present on the third day. And also on the second day, because we liked the setting that we were in to capture that B-roll. We had all of the documents that we wanted to get in B-roll with that interviewee. We spontaneously went around the facility. We got some video of the CEO packaging a big box because there's this theme that runs throughout the script of the CEO being the most overpaid packaging clerk. And so we had that CEO packaging up a box because we thought we can stitch that in when that part of the story is told. So if you know the script, you know what kind of B-roll you're going to need and you need to jump on it when you see it because you may forget to get it or you may not have all the people there. So jump on the B-roll when you can. And usually your videographer is flexible. You've hired them to do the work and they'll flex to you. What strikes me in this moment is how much footage you get hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and how little ends up in the final documentary. <laughs> The editing phase is crushing because there's so much great footage and you can't use it all. Piecing it together is like creating a masterpiece. It just takes time and having a deft hand, deaf editorial skills. It's a lot of work. Okay. Now we are on to our sixth tip or sixth takeaway. What is it, Melissa? Know when you need a partner. So this starts even at the storytelling research phase. Maybe you want to do a documentary, but nobody in your family knows how to write a script or wants to write a script. Maybe you do the research, but you need somebody to come in and help you pull the script together. There are certain limitations that you're going to have. But on the day of the shoot, there are even more limitations because you probably aren't a professional videographer. And you probably aren't a professional when it comes to sound. And you probably will need a makeup artist so that the people, when they're being interviewed, look pretty good, right? So it's it's a team approach, and you have to realize where the holes are in your team. I also think, as, as, as I think about this project, it's a, it's a long project. It's a six to eight-month project. I was talking to an executive last week 
who is is a is a president of a foundation and wants to uh, they want to write a book about the culture at their organization and I, I just said to him you know one who's writing it if it's you it's a year-long project and you need to create space in this for at least two to three days a month that you're devoting to this even if you outsource a lot of the ghostwriting you just need to to have this kind of mind space and mindset that this is what it's going to take. I think if you do a documentary, I think you should think in terms of six to probably 12 months if you're going to do it well. Of course, it depends on how complex it is and and other related factors, but it's just going to take longer than you think. And so part of that complexity, needing a partner means it's probably going to take you longer than you think and just give it enough time to to get it done well. All right. The final one is what? You might consider a book of stories if you feel like you can't include everything in the documentary. And that's something that our client is doing as well, because we have this very specific story that we want to tell in the documentary because we don't want an hour long documentary. We're aiming for it to be about 10 to 12 minutes which means that not every story that is told is going to be in that documentary. We're going to focus on the major major scenes, the major moments, the major temple scenes, and then some of those minor stories that support um, those three lines, which we discussed earlier. So if you have still all of these wonderful stories, because you've done all this research, right? Like we did 30 plus interviews, like I mentioned, you're going to have so many stories that are still valuable to passing on the legacy and history of your family, that you might consider creating a short book of just those stories. And in it, you can include imagery to supplement the story. So what you're getting is a documentary plus a book. And it's two different forms, which is really wonderful. So I I do think supplementing a book, but I think it's important that it's not a traditional book, like 250 pages, 50,000 words, like we talked about at the beginning of, of the episode. So this one, which we're working on and we're almost done with, will be just a series of stories from the perspective of all the people who have experienced the values, right? So it includes customers. It even includes someone who went to work for a competitor. And it also includes some stories from the, uh, not the founders, but the leaders who are now retired, who are still alive. But it's, it's, it's in the first person, and it's a simple story. So there's, it's really an image plus a 300 to 500-word essay or story. And it really is powerful. And, it, it, and all you know the through line for the book is, of course, it has to reflect one of the three values that, that we identified or three themes at the beginning of the project. So I do think a book, if you rethink what a book might be and maybe more of a coffee table book or certainly something that people can dip in, read a story and put it down and then go back to it and read another section and not feel like they've lost track of the theme or the idea. So a book may be something you want to add to the documentaries as like a supplement so that you don't lose all those stories. And the beauty of that is you don't have to, like you say, sustain interest for 50,000 words. You just have to sustain interest for 300 to 600 words, which is so much easier. Melissa, this has been great. There's so much information here, so many learnings and so many takeaways for 
for all of us. Is there anything that stands out for you, like the single thing that people should consider or a family should consider as they evaluate putting together a documentary? I think that you have to look at the long-term benefits of doing so. I think it's a gift to your family because your predecessors aren't going to be around forever, right? And like I said in the intro, the further away you get from that founder story, the founding of the business, the further away you get from the values of your family and what has sustained you. Sure, you have the values, but why do you have those values? I think the why is so important for what you do as a family business or family enterprise. And so I think that a video, a documentary is a great gift to your family. And it, I think, can serve your family for generations to come. So it might be an investment. You might wonder at times, are we ever going to get done with this project? Is it worth the investment of resources? But it is a gift. And I think it has value in sustaining your family for future generations. Is there anything you'd add to that, Dave? The one thing is that this is not a branding video. I know some of some families still have an operating business, right? And I think to make it a branding video makes it kind of inauthentic, right? Because you're trying to talk about your promissorial brand as it as relates to your existing and current clients. But this is a little bit different. And I think I think the thing that, that keeps this unique is that through line. I think if I would to say one thing, it's it's a script that has a through line that connects the key stories or the major, what you call the tentpole scenes that create this through line to tell a really cohesive, compelling family story. And as our client said to us, they had trouble understanding the significance of some of those early stories. They realized in doing this documentary how important those stories were. So again, when you have a script, when you've done the research, you can frame it for your family and I think really reconnect them to their heritage. Great way to end this episode. All right. But before we truly end this episode, Dave, let's turn to our words of the episode. I'll go first. It's nearing my favorite season of the year, which is Christmas. And I go all out with my Christmas decorating, probably over the top, but I am a much girl, as we all know. And so I get out all sorts of Christmas decorations. And my word of the episode is related to that. And that is bobble, a small decorative sphere hung from a Christmas tree. I'm going to have all sorts of bobbles all around my house. And the big question is, is how many bobbles will break this Christmas? Because I tend to break quite a few and I'm hoping it's fewer than last year. So my word of the episode is bobble. It's a fun so word spell to say. That. Spell that. B-A-U-B-L-E. A small decorative sphere hung from a Christmas tree. All right. That is a new word for me. So funny story, when Davis was probably about three, four years old, definitely preschool, he would take a bobble from the Christmas tree and hide it underneath my pillow in my bedroom. So when I went to bed at night, I heard this and I had crushed a bobble and he thought it was so funny. Every day he would go and hide another bobble underneath my pillow. So I finally trained myself to look for bobbles beneath the pillow. <laughs> That's awesome. What a great memory. All right, Dave, what's your word of the episode? Today I was thinking, okay, I got to come up with a word for the episode and I don't have one. So I right away defaulted to 
All right. I'm going to do a fly fishing word because I love to fly fish. So I, I thought I'm going to use the word tippet. So I thought I better go look at to see what the definition is. I know what it is as it relates to fly fishing, but I need to check it out. What, what is tippet? And come to find out, tippet is a woman's long fur scarf or shawl worn around her neck and shoulders. Did you know that? I did not know that. I did not know either meaning. So this is an entirely new word, Dave. You have stumped me. So tippet, T-I-P-P-E-T. And the second, which is what I know, it's the lightweight portions of material that is attached on the other end of the fly and on the end of the leader. So the way it works with fly fishing, you have your fly line attached to the end of your fly line. You have a fly fishing leader. And then you often will add tippet, which is even thinner. And, and so you might, for example, if you have a, a, a tippet or a leader, excuse me, that's nine foot six weight, you'll add a six weight tippet at the end. The reason you do that is because you want, you want not to scare the fish, right? So when you cast that fly, you have the lightest line possible at the end of your tippet, right? Your tippet is the lightest line. And so that the, if, especially if you're dry fly fishing, you cast it and the fly gently floats to the stream. And, and then the, you know, as opposed to if you have too heavy of tippet or you cast sloppily, the fly hits the water. Of course, it scares the fish, right? So anyway, so tippet is that final thin line that goes from the leader to the fly. Fishing is so technical, Dave. I'd be terrible at it. <laughs> I doubt I'm it. Women are actually phenomenal at fly fishing. They really are. I bet you'd be great at it. I don't think so, but I'm impressed with your vast knowledge of fly fishing. It's amazing. <laughs> <to me. laughs> at least somebody is. <laughs> well, I think that that is another great episode. I hope that people are really starting to think about how they can tell their family story, whether it's a documentary or a book. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm -hmm.